Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Ari Linden about his book, Karl Kraus and the Discourse of Modernity, which was published by Northwestern University Press in 2020. Ari Linden received his PhD in German studies from Cornell University in 2013. Currently, he's an associate professor at the University of Kansas, where he teaches a wide range of classes on Modern German Culture and Language. Ari Linden's research also includes German-Jewish culture and critical theory. Hello, Ari. Hello. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, And I'm looking forward to our discussion of your book. But first of all, I would like to ask you uh, how you developed your interest uh, in Karl Krauss's writing. Yeah, sure. Um, I I started getting interested in Krauss... um, in graduate school, uh, pretty early on, and I, I really came to him through my longstanding interest in the Frankfurt School, specifically in figures like Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno. Uh, I started noticing that Krauss's name would appear with some frequency in their writings, um, and it kind of coincided with a developing interest also in just modern sort of German-Jewish literature and culture. Uh, and a specific interest in in Viennese modernism, uh, I guess to put it succinctly, or early 20th century Austrian literature and culture. And I think Krauss uh, was in some sense at the center of all three of these different developing research interests. Um, As I got then more interested in Krauss uh, on his own terms and and, and what he was and what he represented, uh, I started developing also more of an interest in the question of satire, just given that that's essentially Krauss's primary vocation. Um, And I think from day one, that's still what what he will always be remembered as, uh, even if it's somewhat limiting. But uh, my dissertation as a graduate student focused not only on Krausian satire, but also satire in works by Elias Canetti and Elsa Lasker-Schuler, and Walter Benjamin, to an extent, more as a theorist of satire. And uh, then as I worked to, to, in some sense, convert the dissertation into a book, it really became a wholly different project when I thought it was time to really just focus on on Krauss himself and giving a closer look at his uh, literary works and then situating him within this you know larger critical intellectual trajectory. So I sort of I didn't completely abandon the question of satire. That still plays a role in the book, but it took a more slightly more subordinate role to just thinking about Krauss in, um, in very, very specific and in more general terms. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that uh, you're interested in satire. What's the most appealing feature uh, of satire for you? Um, that's a good question. I think... Uh, I kind of have a, a normative understanding of satire. It either is or it is not that. Um, I think when it's true satire, uh, it captures something of the uh, 
you know, social contradictions at work in society, right? There's something that it simply exposes that's already there. I mean, I think this, this agrees with my, my predilection towards dialectical thinking, uh, that there is sometimes these contradictions that need to be teased out to some extent and put on display. And I think, uh, especially in the case of modern or modernist satire, uh, that tends to be humorous when done so, when done so correctly. And I think Krauss just had such a, a brilliant vision of how to tease out these various forms of hypocrisies, contradictions, uh, social injustices in various dimensions of modern experience. And he was such a, a, a biting wit that, you know, he was able to combine these insights with, with just brilliant prose. I mean, I think that's something that even within German studies, though Krauss is a very known figure, uh, still as a writer, he's often neglected just sort of what, what, what fundamentally brilliant prose he was able to produce. So, so yeah, so to your first question about satire, I think it's just the ability to, to, to put on display these kinds of contradictions and to do so in a way that makes us laugh, but also makes us truly think about why this is funny or why this is absurd. So one more question before we um, discuss your um, book. Uh, you said that Carl um, uh, Krauss's writing is neglected uh, in many uh, instances or cases. Uh, why, why is it? Um, that's also, I, it, I think I know the answer to this, although it's not entirely clear. I should say that, uh, I should qualify this by saying there's been something of a Krauss revival mm-hmm. over the last few years. I'd like to think that you know, my book and, and my research is contributing it to some extent, but uh, recent translations of Krauss's work, not only by renowned scholars, uh, but also contemporary writers like Jonathan Friend. So there is something of a revival going on within the Anglophone context. Krauss, I think, is a much still larger figure, certainly in Austria and in German, you know, Germanistic. Um, I think, though, in part, the the paucity of translations, I think, has explained in part why Krauss hasn't received such a great, you know, a real reception uh, in the English-speaking world. And I think the reason for that is that, again, you know, going back to what I was saying, his writing, which is so dense and so uh, linguistically challenging, and then to compound that, uh, so highly elusive, not only in terms of uh, the German sort of literary and cultural tradition that Krauss is always integrating and incorporating in his writings, but also the fact that Krauss is always referencing minor, what we would now consider sort of minor figures of his era, uh, journalists that we would no longer study or minor writers or uh, political figures that for whatever reasons don't have uh, or have not been received by posterity to the extent. So I think the fact that uh, so much of these figures and discourses, you know, populate his writings, uh, it makes him more inaccessible to some extent to a contemporary readership. So I would say those two factors combine uh, yeah, to, to make him less of a known figure. And uh, probably one more question following up uh, on your uh, comment. So you said that his language is dense and challenging. Uh, and what about translations which are available in English uh, today? Um, could you recommend any of those or how would you evaluate, evaluate those translations, taking into yeah. consideration this uh, remarks that you made? Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, there are actually two recent translations of Krauss's, arguably his you know magnum opus, The Last Days of Mankind. The one that's uh, received, I think, more press, the more established translation is Edward Timms and Fred Bridgham, or the late Edward Timms, I should say, recently passed. Um, 
And this is an excellent translation. It's annotated. It has a great forward, um, an excellent index. I think uh, it's hard to say anyone couldn't conceive of anyone doing a, a better job in some sense. I think taking on this kind of task itself is is such a challenge. So uh, we should be thankful that it exists. It was certainly proved helpful in the writing of my book. Um, the collection of essays that was primarily translated by Jonathan Franzen with, with much assistance from Paul Ryder, uh, one of the finer cross scholars around now, and the Austrian writer Daniel Kilman. I think that also produces some really good work. Um, there are some idiosyncrasies in this translation, and there are also, I think, the selection of works. In some sense, it makes it sort of an odd text itself. I mean, I found it immensely helpful in trying to put together uh, pieces of these writings and these essays that I had previously found more difficult. Krauss's essays on Heinrich Heine and and Nestroy and other 19th century figures. But, um, you know, again, anyone who's interested in Krauss, anyone who would want to know something more about his essayistic oeuvre and yet who doesn't read German or doesn't read German very well, uh, I certainly would recommend that collection of translations too. There are older translations also by Harry Zone and others, but those are a little bit uh, a little bit more excerpted and it's kind of a smattering of samples, you know, a sample of Krauss's work that uh, can certainly help. But I think these more recent translations provide something more comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, moving forward to your book, Karl Krauss and the Discourse of Modernity. How do you la- locate Krauss in the Discourse of Modernity? Yeah, so I think I, I should say that I, I sort of was hesitating with this kind of title because both of those words on either side of the of are are kind of overdetermined. Uh, but that aside, I think I would say that I can answer it in two ways. Um, I use discourse in a very specific sense. I think that everything that Krauss ultimately is concerned with comes down to a form of language. Uh, so even when Krauss is writing about World War One, or when he's writing about the successes and failures of Austria's First Republic, or writing about the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe, uh, his first and last remarks always have to do with with the language that is used to articulate these sort of political forms or institutions. So I think that that Krauss is on a, as I said, very little sense concerned with the way that we speak and think and write. You know, most importantly. Um, this is why Krauss, throughout his entire career, is always ridiculing journalists above all. Uh, some would find this, especially in today's climate, somewhat problematic. But I think Krauss's point, we can get to this later on, too, is that uh, we need to start with, you know, the limits of our language, so to speak, and, and how things are being expressed. So that would be the first answer. And, and then I think the second, when I think of the discourse of modernity in particular, this pertains more to the second half of my book where I'm actually situating Krauss in a kind of intellectual history and suggesting that, uh, and this is not a completely original argument, but that Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, is a kind of precursor in certain senses. And then looking more closely at the affinities um, between Krauss's writings and views and those of Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno in particular. So placing Krauss within this historical trajectory, um, I would argue that those three critic philosophers, um, their primary objects of critique was modernity. I mean, I think to put it somewhat bluntly, but uh, thinking about the role of the individual and the collective, in some sense, you can identify that as central features of all of those figures work. And I think 
inserting Krauss in this trajectory and making these relations more explicit was part of the task of my book. Um, so that would be probably the second way I'd answer that, mm -hmm. that question. So you made a few uh, comments about Krauss's um, style. Uh, first, you said that his language is dense and challenging. And then you said that uh, uh, he puts a lot of actually emphasis on the language he uses to write about uh, history and to write uh, to comment on some historical events. So uh, I feel like there is some connection between these two comments that uh, mm -hmm. uh, we uh, complicate the language we use when we speak about some certain things. And I'm wondering if it's possible at all to discern some theory of language uh, which is um, characteristic or specific uh, for Krauss. Uh, does he have his own, let's say, uh, philosophy of language? I would probably want to hesitate to say that Krauss has his own philosophy of language. I mean, I think on a, on a kind of more literal sense, Krauss was not a theorist mm -hmm. uh, in any technical sense. Uh, he does have a few essays. He has an essay called Die Sprache or, you know, on language, essentially where he is meditating and it, you know, it does kind of rise to the level of philosophical speculation, although I wouldn't necessarily want to locate Krauss's approach to language only in those essays where he's speaking in kind of meta terms, uh, even though I I certainly think they help. Um, but if I try to, let's see, distill this into a couple of, you know, pithy statements, um, I think that, you know, for Krauss, the kind of litmus test for where a society is ethically and politically speaking um, is looking at, you know, the primary discursive modes mm -hmm. that constitute it. So for Krauss, it's not just arbitrary that he's looking at the modern journalistic apparatus. Uh, it's not uh, just a, a kind of uh, hobby horse or something mm -hmm. for him. I think for Krauss, he wants to locate within modern journalism mm -hmm. and within especially, you know, what we, what we might call mainstream journalism, but for him, uh, the large press organs and outlets of his time scrutinizing the language that one sees there uh, is the way to, to in some sense unpack and, and expose most of kind of what I was referring to earlier as the social and political contradictions of a given epoch. Mm -hmm. um, so this meant that Krauss was not only concerned with looking at actual words and phrases and what he would call the tone of a particular form of journalistic writing. And I think he saw this sort of most profoundly articulated in, in the feuilleton of his time, this kind of um, syrupy, literary, journalistic hybrid, at least for him. Um, so not only scrutinizing that language and trying to show his readers how kind of obfuscating this language was, but also... Um, trying to understand the newspaper itself as an expression of, you know, for lack of a better term, class interests. Uh, you know, I don't want to call Krauss, you know, an orthodox Marxist by any means, but I think uh, that's what he understood these kinds of, of institutions to be. They were uh, clearly in, influenced by interests that weren't often explicit or, uh, you know, made available to the public and therefore uh, they could only in some sense have a veneer of objectivity in what they were in the positions that they were expressing. So the fact that during World War I, Krauss goes after 
not, you know, the ultimate, I mean, he does go after sort of the more right-wing press outlets, but his main target of critique is the kind of centrist outlets, the Neue Freie Presse, the kind of, you know, New York Times of Cross's day, um, because it's there where he sees sees real propaganda, you know, functioning. And it's there where he sees the collusion between financiers and war profiteers and generals and politicians. Uh, and, and so I guess this is kind of a roundabout way of saying, I don't know if I so much call it a philosophy of language as more of an approach to, to how to understand, you know, truly what's, what's going on in a given social moment or historical moment. Uh, in your uh, book, you emphasize the intertextuality that Krause's works reveal and engage in. Um, how does intertextuality function in Krause's rendition? Yeah, so I think um, there are also probably a couple ways to to address that question. You know, for Krause, any any instantiation of language is is up for grab, so to speak. So you can find in a given essay, um, or you know, let's take his last major work, The Third Walpurgis Night, also a forthcoming translation of that. In fact, I believe it was actually just officially published a few days ago by the late Edward Timms and Fred Ridgemagen. That's an aside, uh, where you find allusions and references to Goethe and Shakespeare and Schiller alongside snippets from contemporary newspapers and Nietzsche and Heidegger and Gottfried Benn and uh, quotes from Goebbels and Hitler And these form a kind of montage, right? And this is kind of the constitution of the text. And I think uh, for Krauss, the main, you know, aesthetic act, if we could call that, is in the act of sort of selection and curation and juxtaposition of these various quotations side by side. And so, you know, there is nothing of him that is potentially more, you know, valuable <laughs> on its own. Uh, it is simply a matter of how these quotations and intertexts relate to one another. Um, Krauss in a particular essay uses this term in German, Einschöpfung. And it's an interesting term that in some sense means something like scooping, mm. uh, or pouring into. So you can use it in the context of like soup. Um, but it also contains this word Schöpfen, which is to create one of the words for creating in German. And, and in Krauss, I think he, he sees the act of, of intertextuality and quotation as a kind of Uh, self-authorizing plagiarism. And by that, I mean that it's an act of creation while at the same time, there's not a single original word in that sense um, inserted. I think this is something that particularly Walter Benjamin found so, um, so genial, you know, in Krauss and what he found sort of be his, his true or his more most authentic polemical, you know, weapon or something like that. Um, and I think there's something to that. And so Krauss was occasionally accused of plagiarism and Krauss would say, it can't really be plagiarism if I've produced something fundamentally new. And I think for Krauss, anytime uh, you scooped, so to speak, a quotation from, you know, high German culture and inserted it into his own text, uh, it, it, it was fundamentally transformed and became something new in that respect. So, um, Yeah, maybe I, I could stop there. I could speak a little bit more about it if you want. But, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, that, that, that was a very interesting image for uh, intertextual references by when, when you say it, uh, scooping. Uh, it's one thing when we think about some word which is borrowed in terms of just 
reference. And it's another thing when we think about that word as being scooped from another context. So it, it creates a much more, I would say, ample, uh, ample um, image uh, and ample word, if, if that's the way to put it. But that's that's yeah. an interesting image. Yes, uh, to yeah. scoop to scoop some image or to scoop some word. Yeah. Um, y- you mentioned some philosophers, um, and you talk um, about uh, Krauss's, so to speak, maybe dialogue with other philosophers, especially in the second uh, half of your book, in the second yeah. part of your book. Uh, would you outline how Krauss engages uh, with with their writings? You mentioned uh, Kierkegaard and Benjamin and Heidegger. Yeah. So there's very specific ways. I mean, I, I should again preface it by saying that Krauss was never... Uh, never had sustained engagements with either the thinkers that preceded him nor his contemporaries or those that in some sense succeeded him. Um, and I can speak, you know, more specifically to each one. And so with Kierkegaard, uh, periodically throughout the Fackel, so the torch, that's Cross's primary periodical, probably should have stated that earlier on, uh, which he published from 1899 to, to 1936 before he died. Um, you'll see Kierkegaard show up occasionally, quotations from Kierkegaard, uh, journal entries, and Krauss was effectively introduced to Kierkegaard through uh, Kierkegaard's primary German translator, Theodor, who is an interesting figure in his own right. I treat him a little bit in this book. He was a Catholic theologian and a, and a satirist and then uh, underwent a conversion. Uh, an interesting intellectual trajectory, but an admirer of Krauss throughout his life. He kind of brought Kierkegaard to Krauss's attention and suggested to him um, that there's something in Kierkegaard's writings, specifically in Kierkegaard's writings about the press and about journalists uh, that Krauss might find interesting. And Krauss did. And so you find a few choice quotations when Kierkegaard is in some sense at his most vicious and most satirical uh, writing about the journalists and writing about the kind of problem that the journalist poses in the contemporary era. So I, th- I think that I mean, part of my argument is that Krauss uh, takes Kierkegaard's you know, inchoate insights and, and kind of develops them further and certainly reflects upon them 50 years later. Um, so Krauss is writing about this now during World War I. Kierkegaard is already talking about the potential relationship between uh, irresponsible journalism and an irresponsible society, let's say, to put it somewhat succinctly. Uh, and I think in a nutshell, that's effectively what Krauss sees going on in terms of World War I, where he, he, he conceives of journalists and uh, editors-in-chief of major news outlets as on par in terms of their responsibility for the causes of the war with heads of states and generals and financiers and that sort of thing. So I think Krauss identifies Kierkegaard as someone who similarly had insight into the uh, the potential function and the potential, you know, um, power that such figures could play um, in the modern, you know, democratic polity. Um, when it comes to the more contemporaries, so let's go to Benjamin and Adorno right now. So Benjamin and Adorno read Krauss's works. They both actually were able to see Krauss perform. Krauss did hundreds of public readings throughout Europe. And Benjamin and Adorno were both in attendance at different times. And Benjamin has a large essay, his most famous essay on Karl Krauss, just simply entitled Karl Krauss. Adorno wrote on Krauss several times, but his most sustained essay comes actually well after World War II. So they're written at very different periods. Benjamin's is in the early 30s. Adorno's in the 
mid-50s. Um, Cross himself never engaged with their writings. This was certainly a one-way dialogue. Part of what I want to argue in my book, though, is that there is, despite historically what's going on, there's sort of more of an implicit dialogue insofar as Benjamin, who also wrote not just about Krauss, but had his own writings and his own sort of theory of, of the press and modern journalism. I think we often tend to think of Benjamin as more concerned with um, specifically kind of modern modes of media, photography, film, montage art, but he, he has some significant pieces and also um, insights embedded in other essays about modern journalism and about the need for modern journalism to kind of be transformed from within. And he turns to Krauss as a, as a, a potential model for what a kind of avant-garde um, or modernist journalism could look like. It's basically Krauss and, and Soviet journalism are many means kind of two models. And I write about this in the book. For Adorno, um, I was more interested in the way that Krauss would in some sense appear in some of the more obvious texts in Adorno's writing. So when, when Adorno's actually engaging in some of his more explicit social criticism or cultural critique, he has an essay called Meinung van Gesellschaft, Opinion, uh, Insanity, Society, or I forget what the English translation is, and Krauss makes an appearance there. He appears in Adorno's Jargon of Authenticity, uh, which makes a lot of sense because they're both, again, extremely focused on questions of language. Um, but Adorno also, uh, sorry, Krauss also plays a somewhat significant role in Adorno's um, negative dialectic. So in Adorno's sort of most strictly philosophical text, um, and one of the last texts that he wrote, Krauss appears. And the way I conceive of it is that Krauss appears like a couple of other figures in this text, Kafka to an extent, Benjamin, as kind of one of the the heroes of the narrative. So it's kind of an antidote to an extent for the problems of, of modern thought. I mean, literally, as Adorno understands it, right? The aporias and the, the violence that that inheres in, in modern discourse. And Adorno in this book traces its origins to German idealism, but then he spends a whole lot of this time um, critiquing Heidegger. And the way I kind of write about this book is, is I think Krauss is kind of an anti-Heidegger in this mm -hmm. book. So both Krauss and Heidegger have certain approaches to language, but where Adorno sees Heidegger as, um, uh, how can I phrase this, as, as uh, delving into sort of a mystical theory of language that comes close to some kind of fascistic understanding of the unity of, of the thing in the word, so to speak. He sees Krauss as, as a true dialectician in his understanding of, of how language needs to constantly be rubbing against itself and the friction that, that needs to adhere within prose of some sort. I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it, but um, somehow he pits these two figures against one another. At least that's how I read it. And so for me, I think that there's been a, a kind of overlooked indebtedness uh, between Adorno and Krauss in that direction for, for understanding Adorno's, not only his own thoughts on language uh, about which he had many, but also Adorno's entire philosophical project. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The notion and all of the concept of power came up a couple of uh, times already. And um, I uh, would like uh, uh, to ask you... um, to, uh, to comment a little bit on the intersection of literature and politics, which could be discerned in uh, Krauss's writing. So in your book, you write, and um, I would like to uh, give a quote here, a political system, Krauss furthermore suggests, fueled by the betrayal of its own ideals, by internal corruption, and by a compromised relationship to the liberal press, had created a set of conditions ripe for the Nazi seizure of power and at uh, would you comment on how literature and politics intertwine and what aspect of this overlap does uh, Krauss emphasize? I guess what I would, I would start by pointing to an, an interesting anecdote, um, and this also comes up in my book. So Elias Canetti, uh, German language writer, Nobel Prize winner, who was at one point in his life an avid, devout sort of fan of Krauss, and then later in life kind of turns against him. That's sort of a separate story, but in his memoirs, he writes um, a lot about the actual event and the aftermath of what's known as the July Revolt of 1927, um, which uh, it's not worth getting into the entire thing, but it basically resulted in about almost 100 protesters getting violently murdered at the hands of the chief of police of Vienna at the time, Johannes Schulberg. Uh, it was a major event. Uh, Krauss himself viewed it as a kind of turning point. Uh, within the, the state and fate of, of Austrian social democracy at the time, uh, which turned out to be essentially true. And Krauss was so outraged by what he saw as just kind of unbridled you know, force that he actually put signs up all over the city demanding that this chief of police step down, abdicate his position. And this is, interestingly, one of the very few moments in Krauss's career where he actually very explicitly takes a political stance sort of outside of the realm of literature, uh, so to speak, outside of the realm of his own periodical. Um, But Kennedy writes that this is the one true moment where he saw a real relationship between literature and politics. And it's it's not a very self-evident statement, I think, what Kennedy meant by that. Um, But the way I understand it is that, uh, you know, effectively most of Krauss's writings are like these statements in a way. Um, they're contained in the journal form uh, in Die Fackel, which, you know, spread throughout the city whenever it was released. It was released in uh, uneven intervals and there was no regular circulation. That was kind of part of Cross's method, so to speak. But in some sense, I view them as all sort of forms of political communiques uh, to an extent. There's nothing that Krauss ever wrote about that doesn't in some way or another have to do with, you know, the particular form of life in which he's occupying and the kind of critique that he's expressing. So whether he's looking at the um, system of jurisprudence in the early 20th century, Cross wrote a lot about this, or he's looking at the literati and the kind of contemporary literary scene and the kind of falsities and pretensions that he sees there, or he's looking again at the journalistic 
discourse and landscape around him, or he's critiquing uh, the jingoism surrounding World War One, or the nostalgia in the interwar period, or the rise of fascism, uh, both in Austria and Germany. Um, all of these writings, I feel like, uh, are political in a more robust sense, uh, because he always has, I think, in mind the kind of, um, you know, the social health of the people, to some extent, I think, you know, going back to the question of satire, you know, Krauss was called often the scourge of, of Vienna, the Jonathan Swift of Vienna, you know, these kinds of things. I think uh, Krauss always saw himself as uh, someone who was there to kind of, um, you know, clean the city of its evils, <laughs> you know, to, and that maybe sounds more melodramatic than it is. But, you know, at one point he literally drove out a, uh, a relatively infamous newspaper magnet out of Vienna and um, and so in that sense I think there are some that would argue that Krauss had sort of more and less political periods in his life or that Krauss became more political and I think there's certain truths to that but it would all fall back on how we understand the term or the concept of politics I, I do think again you know from his first major text the demolished literature, the demolierte literature in 1899 to the third wall, night, you still see something of, a of a stance that Krauss is taking towards, uh, towards the conventions and towards the, you know, the social attitudes and dispositions and, and the political ethos of his time. Uh, I guess maybe just to add quickly to that, I do think again, um, to go back to Krauss's relationship to journalism, um, I think it's not at all an exaggeration to say that, you know, for Krauss, who was himself a journalist, also, as Paul Ryder calls him, an anti-journalist, but, um, you know, journalists are political agents for Krauss. I think he, he sees them as by no means innocuous transmitters of the goings-on of the day, but, but as generators of public opinion, and therefore he sees them as having lots of power. And I think um, one of the constants in Krauss's writing is bringing to people's attention, the kind of power that inheres within this kind of institution, the fact that the words we read and listen to and hear will become the words that we speak and the way we think. Uh, and so uh, I do think as far as your question about Krauss's understanding of power, which he never, again, explicitly theorized, but that might be one approach to it. I think it's an interesting question. I've never really thought about Krauss on, on power per se. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I guess your uh, comment is uh, connected with the uh, following um, um, remark um, about uh, Krauss's works as a commentary on, on the role of media in the construction of reality. In your book, you uh, talk about um, how uh, Krauss plays with fact and uh, fiction. And um, um, to what end does he play with fact and fiction? Does he create some... I don't want to say alternative reality and I don't want to say alternative facts, but still, uh, to what end does he play with fact and fiction? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a difficult question um, and an important one because it in some sense brings Krauss to our more contemporary period. Um, I would say that, you know, there is very little fiction in Krauss. Mm-hmm. Um, his point to some extent is that even those things that we take to be the most reliable sources of truth or objectivity, uh, the things that are supposed to also be informing us, namely, uh, 
the news that he takes uh, these things to be worthy objects of critique that must be scrutinized because of the fictions that they themselves are producing. Um, this is why he is going to focus so much on a single word or on the repetition of a particular mm-hmm. uh, phrase that he sees in an article. Um, because what his larger point is that, you know, these are the kinds of narratives that are spun, so to speak, every day, whether the views that they're espousing tend to be ones that we would sympathize with or not. I mean, at the end of the day, Krauss was still, and though I think this might have been his greatest weakness, even to some extent by his own admission, there was the right wing press and there was a kind of center or left. Uh, Krauss spent a lot of his career uh, kind of ridiculing the centrist media. And at one point said he didn't ever thought in a way that the right wing media would have such an influence as he did because it was written so poorly. He didn't think people could be susceptible to being influenced by such poorly written media. It's an interesting thought, especially given our contemporary climate. But, uh, you know, for Krauss, it was the finer things written, the good writers, the, you know, self-appointed kind of mediators of public opinion and the public intellectuals, they themselves there needs to be a check on their authority. I mean, in some sense, this is, goes back to your first question, you know, where does Krauss get situated in modernity? I think Krauss is someone who's well aware of what it meant to live in an increasingly secular society, a society that was becoming ostensibly more and more democratic, and a society that revered the institutions that it claimed were democratic. And for Krauss, he's saying something like, our new, you know, experts speak there needs to be a check on their authority as well, right? What are the kinds of views and what are the sort of biases and what are the interests that are being concealed and yet articulated through them as well? So a kind of check on the, I mean, if you want to use you know, your term, the fictions that are being promoted by, by even our revered you know, intellectuals in that sense. So I, I, I hope that that kind of gets to what you're, to what you're saying. Um, you know, Krauss, Krauss wrote very little fiction uh, the play that I focus on in my book, the, in the second chapter, which is on a very, very little known play of his called Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is an adaptation of uh, Aristophanes's um, The Birds. You know, there we have Krauss at Arguable's most fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, in some respects, not an excellent play. I found it very interesting as an allegory. And some of Krauss's, you know, Literary puns and this and that are just are, are brilliant, but it's it's you know nothing more also than a thinly veiled allegory for the contemporary situation in Austria's First Republic, the first mm-hmm. few years of that republic. So, you know, even there, Cross is uh, creating a kind of world, but but inserting his own world very explicitly within this this mm-hmm. kind of fiction there. So that's a sort of separate point, but mm-hmm. yeah, as far as Cross's own relationship to fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess what I meant by uh, fact and fiction is this uh, connection between uh, um, facts, which are considered to be real or historical, yeah. and facts yeah. probably which are based on and uh, fiction facts which are based on these historical uh, events or uh, episodes, but they not what we call real. And I right, real, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I think um, what you write about Krauss uh, somehow implies this constructed reality as well. And 
Yeah, no, excellent. That's that clearness of it. I mean, yeah, I, um, when, I mean, maybe we can start with the later. So when Krauss gets to writing about Hitler and Nazism and Austrofascism and what's going on in the late twenties and early thirties, um, and he sees that, you know, with the rise of Hitler, we have the, the crushing of the free press, the so-called free press. And mm-hmm. um, what Krauss wants to argue, and this is, you know, arguably one of his most polemical and controversial points in this book, is that the world that has been effectively constructed through the media apparatus, mm-hmm. I mean, I like your, your word construction there, is the world that has given rise now to this completely... Uh, barbaric reality that we're now occupying. So for Krauss, it is no surprise whatsoever that Goebbels, the master of propaganda, was trained kind of in the ways of modern media, that he understood these techniques so well and could repurpose them uh, for regressive, reactionary, and ultimately violent ends. Uh, For him, Goebbels was, you know, a, a student, so to speak, of this time and learned these methods well. And this is a problem obviously, for Krauss, because he sees then uh, a society that sort of was right for this kind of manipulation, precisely because it had spent decades and decades getting used to being kind of also manipulated to some extent, uh, if for not the same kinds of barbaric ends that now were, were, uh, uh, were arising. And so, I mean, maybe that's that's one particular point, you know, that he's making. So he says at one point that, you know, Nazism is not the end of the press. It's it's its continuation mm-hmm. to some extent. It's a pretty well-known line from the text. And again, it's it's kind of chilling to hear something like that. Um, but of course, it's not surprising when we think of the idea of uh, prominent media figures all of a sudden being propped up into political roles, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So there, there might be another way to, so they get, yeah, maybe the last point there would be that, um, what I think is interesting, you know, Krauss was able to, for personal reasons, to effectively never, um, have to run ads in his paper, right? He was an independent journalist in a very robust sense, uh, because of inherited wealth and all sorts of things. However, that gave him the freedom to be able ultimately to express his views. And they are, it should be emphasized from 1911 onwards, they were all his views ultimately Mm -hmm. because he didn't allow anyone else to publish in defaco after that, after the first 12 years of its existence. But um, I think there's something more theoretical or interesting to be taken from this. And I, I write about this also in the book, which is that, you know, Krauss's point is that in most forms of journalistic discourse, uh, one sees opinions being generated uh, and one sees ultimately interests being expressed that are kind of concealed, right? Because you have ads, you have um, politicians, you have all sorts of uh, different sectors of society sort of influencing, right? What gets ultimately published. Krauss didn't have to succumb to this kind of pressure. Therefore, he could be an independent journalist. Mm -hmm. And I think his point there is also that his views could be his own, that he could avow that they were his own views. So he's not claiming a sense of objectivity as much as he's claiming uh, a sense of ownership over his own ideas, something that for him couldn't be said about most other forms of, of press outlets. So 
there's, as far as that relationship to kind of constructed reality, I'm not sure if Krauss is suggesting what we need is a journalism that's truly objective. Uh, I think he's too much of a modernist to think that that sort of thing could exist, but rather um, a transparency, right, between um, between a journalistic apparatus and, and the views that it that it espouses and that become influential, ultimately. Uh, earlier, you mentioned Soviet propaganda, and uh, I'm wondering how that came up uh, in terms of your uh, research. So, I, I well, I should qualify that. That's uh, this is something I might want to pursue a little further at some point. It was it's Walter Benjamin, really, who um, I don't know if flirting is the best word, but certainly had a kind of a somewhat passing, somewhat abiding interest in uh, you know in Soviet culture, what was going on in post-Soviet. Uh, or post-revolutionary Soviet Union. And as far as I can tell, I don't know how much Benjamin was truly invested in understanding the um, the way that a kind of um, Soviet press was being operated, but he at least idealized it into thinking that this was a kind of press that uh, was truly a press of and for the people, right? A sort of proletarian Kind of but, press. but that that that's a classical example of a constructed reality. <laughs> well, again, I mean, right. But we have to we have to probably historicize this now. It's one thing to say this a century later, another to be you know occupying you know Benjamin's romanticized you know vision of of Marxism or something like that. There, so I think that's right. Which is why I'm not I'm not necessarily in, I'm by no means endorsing the view you know that Benjamin was kind of expressing there again more of an idealization I think mm-hmm. that this could be you know the seeds of a of a press that was you know where the uh, means of production so to speak are you know in the hands of those producing it as opposed to what he called the bourgeois press so this you know this dyad always exists in Benjamin what I found interesting in some close readings of these texts by Benjamin is that Krauss sort of functions in a similar way. Uh, it's almost like Krauss would be the apotheosis of, of the bourgeois press as himself an individual, a member of the bourgeois class, but a self-reflective member of that class, right? Sort of uh, a conscious or self-conscious moment within the, the apparatus of the bourgeois press. Therefore, you know, the seeds of kind of something revolutionary. So there's Krauss on the one hand, and there's the Soviet press on the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, more interesting as, as, you know, a way to, to get inside of Benjamin's own, you know, conceptual apparatus and less so for evaluating how accurate Benjamin was about, you know, the truly revolutionary potential of this press. Cause I, I wouldn't argue with that at all, but I also don't know enough about, uh, about that historical dimension there. So the interest is more in how, how Benjamin is, is writing about these two things and perhaps what he's idealizing about both. Um, I certainly wouldn't think uh, you wouldn't find Benjamin endorsing any kind of propagandistic type of press, uh, which is nothing but constructed reality, as you said. Well, the way you write about Krauss and the way you uh, speak about Krauss um, makes his writing very relevant uh, for uh, our today's situation, so to speak. Do you include his works into those courses that you teach? And if you do, uh, what's your students' reaction, the response to these uh, works? Um, I've had very little opportunity to teach much Krauss. I don't I don't teach any graduate seminars right now. Uh, we don't have a graduate program, which I think Krauss really belongs more in an upper level, especially if we're going to be reading him in the original language or in German. 
I have taught um, little excerpts from the last days of mankind and from some writings of his in and around World War One for a course that I've taught on satire and politics before. And uh, that, I think, has been effective. Um, I, for example, Krauss has a piece that uh, I partially included in the, in the introduction to my book where he he's reading about advertisements for kind of battlefield tourism, right, in the, in the battlefields of World War I. And it's a Swiss advertisement, and it's talking about how wonderful it would be to sort of relive the adventure of this World War and having these luxurious breakfasts and staying in these, you know, luxurious hotels while you're sort of witnessing the carnage and the destruction that, that was the war. And for Krauss, of course, this was um, nothing but a form of, of profiteering off this kind of, you know, barbarous moment in modern history. And I taught that in class. And I think that was received well, because I think the students could understand this kind of juxtaposition uh, both by merely reproducing the advertisement itself, you know, nothing more than the advertisement, and then Krauss's pretty sardonic commentary on, on what's really going on here. Um, I do think that if I were to have an opportunity to teach a course, um, you know, let's say on, uh, on news media or, you know, the history of news media in, in Germany and America or something like this, I mean, this would be somewhere down the line. I'd have an interest in doing that. Uh, I think it would be extremely relevant to bring Krauss in as a kind of foundational point for this, because I think there's really no way of understanding modern media criticism without including Krauss as part of this historical trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, he wouldn't necessarily have to be the starting point, but he would certainly have to be included in this story that would that could be told. Um, I, I didn't write a whole lot about Krauss's contemporary relevance in the book. Uh, I think that could be a, a kind of future project and others have written articles about this. Um, I've thought about it. I think I would need to do a lot more thinking about it um, because there are again aspects to Krauss that, that, uh, that need to be further scrutinized and question whether they're, they would be more regressive or reactionary in our contemporary moment mm -hmm. than they were in his potentially. But um, as far as his sort of challenge to be as critical and as scrutinizing as we can of all forms of discourse, of all forms of journalistic and media discourse that we are exposed to, I mean, I think that that stands relatively unchanged. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that would be something as far as some continuity between his work and uh, and you know, contemporary media critique, even though, of course, the media landscape is so vastly different 100 years later. Um, yeah, so that, that, I hope, answers some of that question, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and uh, your book was just published in 2020, and I'm sure it feels like some completed project. I'm uh, wondering if your current project is in any way connected with um, Karl Kraus or identity in general. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, well, I should uh, first place saying that current research is a slightly being postponed right now for, for, for obvious reasons. Uh, I will be doing in the next few months, I'll be writing a kind of review essay actually on the new Krauss translation on the mm -hmm. third wall Purgus night, also in conjunction with a new translation of some of Kafka's unpublished writing and Joseph Wolt or Joseph Roth's writing, so some recent translations. So that'll be a sort of minor project. Um, 
as far as the next big project goes, yes and no. I'm I'm going to be I think I'm going to be kind of taking a break from Kraus to some extent, but still his milieu will be important. Um, I'm going to be looking at at uh, the notion of exile mm-hmm. in in some German Jewish writers in the 19th and 20th century, but also in conjunction with with dialectics and dialectical thinking and philosophy. So trying to kind of connect, um, let's say, two two canons, as it were. Uh, and and I'm not very far with this. I have a few authors that I'm considering: Elsa Lasker Schuler. Theodore Adorno, again, so Adorno will be someone that, as far as from the first project, carrying over. Um, also Freud, um, Hannah Arendt, so a few of these you know, relatively known figures, but trying to bring them together over this question of, of exile and how we could still understand this term, which has a kind of dated feel to it, but understand it in its maybe somewhat contemporary relevance. So not very far with this project, just very sort of thinking about authors and texts that I want to start mm-hmm. investigating through this lens, but, but that's where I am right now. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, uh, Ari, and congratulations again on this new uh, book. Uh, and I hope, uh, I hope that uh, in some near future, uh, your students uh, will be able to read um, Karl Kraus. Uh, and um, it, it, it seems to me that the way you approach him and his writing really uh, sheds some new light on our understanding of modernity, which can be relevant uh, to um, some contemporary issues and contemporary concerns. Uh, it does sound very, very um, uh, modern, I, I would say, modern and contemporary and relevant. Um, so congratulations on that and good luck on your uh, future projects. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much uh, for interviewing me and, and also to New Books. This was a really, really great experience. So thanks. Thanks to you and your team. Uh, today I spoke with Ari Linden, author of Karl Kraus and the Discourse of Modernity, which was published by no- Northwestern University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.